You know, I think one of the least popular ideas that we have today is the idea of suffering, the idea of struggle, and especially of these actually being good things. Now, I think we, li- we live in a time where we do everything we possibly can to make our lives as easy as we possibly can. We want everything fast. We want everything to be effortless. We don't want to have to wait. We don't want to have to struggle or strive to get anything. And in so many ways, we don't have to do that anymore. Things come to us so easily and things are so affordable and it's just an easy, easy time to be alive. Uh, But I think we, in some ways, perhaps we're robbed of effort. We're robbed of the struggle. We're robbed of some of the benefits that come along with with discipline, with with suffering, with, with struggle. And so I wanted to look at that idea today, this idea of struggling, this idea of competing, having to fight for something. And I want to look at how Paul addresses this idea, especially to the Corinthians. And the passage we're going to look at is in 1 Corinthians 9. But before we get to it, I just want to set a bit of bit of context to what this passage is actually about. So the text in question is 1 Corinthians 9, 24 to 27. Now, chapter 9 itself, believe it or not, falls between chapters 8 and 10 in 1 Corinthians. But chapter 9 is something of a segue. It's something of an interjection into a broader idea that's going on that Paul's trying to address. So the overall passage that we're looking at is 1 Corinthians 8 through 10. And what these three chapters are addressing is an issue where the Corinthians want some, well, some of the Corinthians want to go up and eat meat at or eat the meat sacrificed to idols at the festivals. They, they want to go up to the temples and participate with the rest of the city in the festivities that are going on at these sacrifices. Now the question we might want to we might ask ourselves is why would they want to do that? Why would a Christian want to go up to one of those pagan festivals? And the answer is quite simple, is that that's what's expected of everyone in the city. So the thing about the ancient gods is that the way that you appease them, the way that you uh, uh, deal with them, the way you work with them, is that every year you have uh, some sort of festival, some sort of honor or sacrifice in their name. Now, for the bigger gods, the the more prominent gods in the city, these could... this sacrifice this festival could take place over days or even weeks and it was essential for everybody to attend because the reason you were there was to keep the god happy you were there to honor the god so that you would be able to effectively buy their favor for the next 12 months and so it was an annual thing it's a bit like buying insurance you buy your insurance then you're covered for the next 12 months that's what these festivals were something like now the expectation was that everybody turned up because the gods didn't discriminate. If somebody dishonored the god, everybody suffered along with it. And so a god who is a patron of the city would impact the whole city, even if only a few people had dishonored the god, and particularly by not turning up to these festivals. Now, one of the exemptions here, one of the exceptions to this practice was the Jewish community. The Jewish community never went to these and never had been. That was just not something that a Jew would do. And everybody knew that. Everybody was cool with that. And the Jews had been there for longer than anybody else had been there. And so everyone knew that the Jews didn't turn up and that was fine. And the gods were, the gods were obviously cool with it because the gods hadn't destroyed the city because the, the Jews didn't turn up last year. That was just an exception that was made 
for the Jewish people. In fact, what the citizens of the city would say to the Jews is, hey, look, when you're praying to your God, can you pray for us along with yourselves? And uh, we'll pray to our God for the for the benefit of the city. And in that way, we can all at least just live with one another. We can all just live and let live is effectively the compromise they had come to. The challenge in the church was that now some of the Gentiles are becoming Christians. Now, the Jews who'd become Christians still didn't go to the temples. They didn't go to the feast. They never had. They never will. And that was fine. Everyone was cool with that. The problem was now you've got these Gentiles who in all of the years of their life up until that point had gone to the festivals. Last year they were there, the year before they were there. Only now they've chosen not to go. Now these Christians, these newfound, these people with this newfound faith are refusing to go to the festi- to the festival and this is going to cause a problem because if the gods get angry, they're going to take it out on all of us because you Christians didn't come up to the festival. In fact, this is one of the key reasons why Christians were persecuted. And we're going to talk about this over in the, in the coming weeks. But one of the chief reasons the Christians faced persecution was their refusal to worship the gods, to, to participate in the festivals. Now, for everyone who did go, this was a great celebration. It was some time off work um, and there was often free food particularly meat. Meat wasn't very readily available in the ancient world, and most of the meat, most of the cattle, was reserved for the gods. And so when you come to the sacrifice, you would sacrifice all of these bulls and cows, and all of this meat would be would be sacrificed, and everyone got to eat it. But importantly as well, all of that meat was now made available in the meat market after the festival. All of the heaps and heaps of leftover meat was now cheaply available because otherwise it's just going to rot. So we've got to get it out. We've got to sell it as quickly as possible, get it, and and so we sell it cheaply. And so this is a great time. Everyone wants to be at the festivals. Everyone's turning out because they're great. They're fun. It's a great party. So why wouldn't you want to be there? So the Christians then, some of these Gentile Christians are in a bit of a, a bit of a bind. Some of them are saying, look, we want to go to the festivals in the same way that we always have because, well, one, maybe to avoid persecution, but secondly, because that's where things happen. That's where, particularly if you're elite, where you can connect with other elite people in the city, where you can network with them, where you can build relationships, all of the benefits of just being in the place, these Christians were missing out on. And that was a struggle they were dealing with. So they were trying to find reasons to go. Well, you know, we've got a right to be there. We're wealthy, we're, we're elite, we've even been invited into the inner sanctums of some of these meals. We're personally invited by maybe some of the people who are putting these feasts on. We want to go, we've got a right to go, so why shouldn't we? Now, yeah, okay, well, look, you know, there's meat sacrificed to an idol, but yeah, look, it's just a piece of meat. You know, it's not real. These gods aren't real. They're just bits of stone or bits of wood. And these temples are just buildings. They're not real. There's nothing about them that is of any real power or consequence because we all know that there is only one God. We know that our God is the most powerful. And so there are no other gods beside him. And so anything we're around, anything we participate with isn't real anyway. So what does it really matter? What's the big deal? And really interestingly, in chapter 8, Paul says, you're right. 
you've got a point. Yeah, it is just a piece of meat. It is just a temple. It's just there are no gods but one. I agree with you. The problem is, Paul says, is that when you go to those festivals, you have that knowledge, I have that knowledge, but not many other people do. And the ones that don't have that knowledge, they're seeing you go into these festivals and they're wanting to go themselves. They're going, well, hang on a second. I thought we couldn't go, but now these people are going. So which is it? Can we go? Can we not go? But if we do go, isn't that worshipping a demon? Isn't that idol meat? So if we go and participate in that, aren't we doing something wrong against God? Well, but we want to go, and so these other people are going, and so maybe we should go, only the difference now is that when they go, they're doing it against their conscience. In their minds, they're saying, this is wrong, but I'm going to do it anyway because this person says it's okay, but even though in my heart I feel like this is wrong, and so they're violating their consciences by doing this. So Paul says, look, you can act in knowledge and you'd be right. The problem is that you're not showing love. You're not acting in a way that's building up these weaker brothers and sisters. And so now we've got a problem because what you're actually doing is you're causing these people in their own consciences to sin. That's not good. That's actually a really, really bad outcome of you exercising your basic right to go to these festivals. And so he says, look, I need you to stop. (laughs) I just need you to stop going there for the greater benefit of these weaker brothers and sisters who in any other context you probably wouldn't care too much about. But what I want you to do is to acknowledge them and acknowledge their weaknesses and lay down your rights and not go. Now, Paul can anticipate their response. Hang on a second. That's a big ask. When have you ever done that? When is it that you've ever laid down your rights and given up your privileges for the benefit of other people? Paul says, I'm glad you asked. He says, remember that time that I was in Corinth and you offered me support. And this is something that happened when Paul was in Corinth. They'd offered him support as uh, to, to, for his preaching. The problem was that the support they'd offered kind of came with strings attached. Remember I talked about this in last week's episode, where a traveling teacher would go into a city and what they would expect would be to be supported by a patron. Somebody would bring them into their house and they would look after them and support them. But that came with a cost. The cost was you're providing or I'm providing you your resources. I'm feeding you. I'm giving you money. I'm paying you to be a teacher. I want something in return. Effectively, I own you. I'm buying your services. So Paul says, when I came to Corinth, you had offered me that, but if I had taken that resource, if I had taken uh, uh, some sustenance or some, some support from you, I would have been in your debt. I wouldn't have been free to preach to everybody. I would have been obligated first and foremost to you guys. And that's not something I could do. And so Paul says to them, you know, I became like a slave. Uh, to the Jews, I become like a Jew. To the Greeks, a Greek. And to the, those without the law, etc., etc. He says, I become all things to all people. And I don't, I'm not owned by anybody precisely so that I can serve everybody. So Paul says, that was my example. That was when, that was how I demonstrated what it looks like to lay down your rights. But then as he moves to the end of chapter nine, and which is where we're going to pick up here, 
What he wants the, to move the argument towards is the risk that they actually run by going to these temples, by going into these, going to these festivals. See, he says, look, in terms of knowledge, I agree. It is just a piece of meat. It's, it's not a real god. It's not anything really. But there is a problem. See, the problem is if you keep going to these festivals, sooner or later, they're going to have an impact on you. Sooner or later, they're going to wear you down because everybody else is doing it. That's where the, the masses are going. That's where society is. And if you keep engaging with it, eventually it's going to have an impact on you. You've got this Christian faith, which is which has requirements. It has harsh, hard requirements and it means sacrifice. You're just saying, oh, I just want to go to the festivals and it's all going to be okay. But Paul says, you know what, maybe the first time, maybe the second time, maybe even the third time, it's going to be okay. But gradually, gradually, you will eventually begin to increasingly participate within these festivities, increasingly perhaps even incorporate or become part of those particular cults. And that's what I don't want to happen. May not happen right straight away, but give it time and eventually it will consume you. And Paul's saying, that's just how sin works. You might think, oh, it's just okay this one time, but then the next time, the next time, and gradually, eventually you get lost, you, you lose yourself within this particular thing. So Paul says, this is what I don't want you to do. This is exactly the last thing that I want you to do. So what he does is he, he sets out this analogy. He says, this Christian life, it's a struggle. It's, it's not meant to be easy. It's meant to be a sacrifice, and it's going to come at a cost. He says, in your case right now, the cost is going to be not going to these festivals. Now, as much as you want to go to them, they where they're going to take you is not a place where you want to go. And so the only option you have is just to not go there at all. Paul says, my solution, if, if my eating meat causes anyone to be offended or causes anyone to sin, he says, I'll just never eat meat again. I just don't want to go there. I don't want to create any sort of stumbling block to those of a weaker faith. So he lays out this analogy, this great analogy from the athletic world. And I want to sort of just unpack it a little bit, un sort of open it up into a bit more of its context and just see what it has to say to us. This is in 1 Corinthians 9, 24. He says, Do you not know that in a race all the runners run, but only one gets the prize? Run in such a way as to get so as to win the prize. A key element of the ancient world, the, the ancient Roman and Greek world, is that it's what we call an agonistic society. Now, this word agony, it's one you're familiar with, and the English word agony means suffering. Well, the word agony, the Greek word agony, means compete, to compete, to struggle, to fight, you know, as we might say, to, to suffer. Now, what this was, what this meant for these guys was that everything you do in life was competition, and everything you do was about winning. See, there's no participation trophies in the ancient world. You either win or you lose. There's no second place. There's no third place. There's just a first loser. So when you do anything, it's about being the best. You have to be at the top. This begins in school. 
at school, you don't do exams. You don't do tests to test everybody's individual knowledge. What you do is you compete. And whatever the thing is that you're doing, you compete in that. And particularly in the schools of oratory, what would happen at the end of the week is that all the students would go into a competition as to who gave the best speech. And for that coming week, that particular student who won would be the, the head student. They would be the number one student. And then next week you'd have an opportunity to beat that student or to continue your place as the best student. Everything was competition. Everything was about struggle. Everything was about getting to the top. And so what Paul is trying to explain to them, what, what Paul is trying to compare the Christian life to is to what their whole existence is, which is this struggle. Paul says, again, don't you know that in a race all the runners run, but only one gets the prize? He says, when we approach the Christian life, we have to do it in the same way. We're in a race and there's only one prize at the end. And so we have to pursue this Christian life as though only one of us is going to win it. Now, of course, we know, we realize, yeah, but that's not true, is it? Because all of us receive a crown. All of us who pursue the things of God are awarded for our efforts and we're rewarded for what we do. But Paul's saying, yes, I get that. But don't just use that as an excuse to not do anything. Oh, well, it doesn't matter. I'm going to get to the end anyway, and I'm going to get some sort of reward. No, no, no. You need to pursue this thing as though there is only one prize. This Christian life, this Christ that we're following after, we need to pursue that like a contest. We have to go for it like we're winning. He goes on and he says in verse 25, everyone who competes in the games goes into strict training. This idea of strict training. It's literally to exercise self-control. So it says everyone who competes in the games, agonizomai, there's that the, the, the verbal form, agony, agonizomai, everyone who competes goes into strict training. Now, when Paul was talking about this, he actually had a set of games in mind. Now, in the Greek world, you have what were known as the Panhellenic Games. One of them we still know of today was the Olympic Games. There was The other one was the, the Nemean Games, the third one was the Delphic Games, and the fourth one was the Isthmian Games. We'll talk a bit more about this in future podcasts. But these four games were the pinnacle of Greek competition. There were games and festivities in every city all through the year, but these were the big ones. It's kind of like there's athletic contests happening, you know, in local competitions up to even national competitions but there's only one Olympics and the Olympics is the best of the best. This is the premier form of the game. Or think about the soccer world cup. You you've got my son plays soccer. He's just in his local soccer team. And there's, you know, to uh, our national competition here in Australia, but then you've got the world cup. The world cup is the pinnacle of soccer. Well, it was the same here. There was these four sets of games that happened every, that happened over a four year period and these were the pinnacle of the competition. Well, the Isthmian Games just happened to be hosted by the Corinthians. And so the Corinth, the city of Corinth, was right near Isthmia. And you can still go and visit. In fact, if you watch the video from this week, uh, the YouTube video for this, for this week's uh, topic, you'll see in Isthmia and you'll see um, the site itself and, and where these games took place. And so for the Corinthians, they knew all about the games because they actually hosted one of the chief games every two years. So for the Corinthians, they had the best of the best athletes and orators and all these competitors would come to the to Corinth 
every two years and they got to host them. They got to celebrate along with them. So Paul says those games, those people that come to Corinth to Ismia to, uh, to compete in the Isthmian games, they have to go into strict training. They have to lay aside everything else that they could do to pursue this one thing, which is their particular sport, their particular specialization. And it sort of introduces us to this idea. It opens up this idea. And it's one that I've, it's, this isn't my idea. It's one that I've heard, but I, I really like this idea. It's that discipline equals freedom. Discipline equals freedom. You know, that sounds like a contradiction. You say, but hang on a second. Isn't the idea of freedom, I can do whatever I want? Discipline says that I can only do certain things. So it seems to be the discipline is the opposite to freedom. But let me give you some examples of how this can look. If you discipline yourself to wake up early, you actually have more free time. You've actually got more time to do the things that you want to do because you've had the discipline of waking up early. I'll give you another example. If you have the discipline to budget, to look after your finances, to budget, to save, if you have discipline around that, you actually free up disposable income. You actually create for yourself financial freedom because you're not bound by debts and by the results of bad financial decisions. Think about exercise. If you have the, de- the discipline to exercise, you have the freedom that comes from better health. There are so many more things that you can do because you're healthier, because you implemented the discipline of getting up to do some exercise. Or what about just not doing the things that you just so desire. You just, oh, I want to do whatever I want. I just want to go and live according to whatever my flesh desires are. Okay, that's fine. But what you're going to create are addictions. What you're going to create are dependencies and all of the negative things that come along with just doing whatever you feel like. But if you have some discipline around your life, you have discipline in the things that you do, you're actually free from all of those addictions and all of those problems that come with just doing whatever you want. So it seems paradoxical, but when you think about it, put it back into the athletic metaphor, all those people that compete at the Olympics or at a you know, tennis open or these great athletes and whose names we would all know, how did they get to be where they were? How did a a Novak Djokovic become, you know, the greatest, one of the greatest tennis players in, in all of history. Well, because from a very early age, when all of his mates were at school or hanging out or not so at school, but, you know, maybe out there playing in the park or doing whatever his friends were doing, he'd be at the tennis court practicing his tennis. Or he'd be getting up early practicing tennis, after school practicing tennis. And so all of these other things that he could have been doing because of the discipline that he had to say, I want to become this great tennis player, well, look at where he's got to today. So Paul's saying it's the same thing with the Christian life. If you want to do great, if you want to do the things of God in, in, in an incredible way and do, and do great things, it's going to take discipline. It's going to, to choose one calling will be at the same time to dismiss a hundred other options of things that you could do with that time or with those resources. So Paul says, In your case, Corinthians, if you want to be like Christ, if you want to do the Christian life well, the cost is going to be sacrificing your your place at these meals, not going up to these meals, even though you could, even though you have a right to, by setting those things aside, by implementing that discipline, you can actually have the greater reward. 
He goes on, he says, they do it to get a crown that will not last, but we do it to get a crown that will last forever. It's a really funny aspect of the ancient games is that when you won, remember, there's only a winner. You don't have second or third place. You just have a winner. In fact, if Paul was to come into the 21st century and we were to show him the Olympic Games, he'd say, well, what's that silver thing you just gave that person? He says, oh, that's a silver medal. We give that to the person who comes second. He'd be like, you give a prize to the first loser? Like, what, what is that even about? That makes no sense to me. So you would win a crown. If you won your sport, you'd get this crown. The thing about the crown, though, is that it was made of a plant. So, for example, if you won the crown at the Olympic Games, it was a crown made of an olive wreath. It was literally, there's an olive branch, cut it off, wind it up into a crown, shove it on your head, and that's your prize. If you won at the Isthmian Games, you'd actually win a prize, you'd win a crown made of celery, wild celery. So you could literally eat the crown. It was, it was of that much value that it was actually a piece of food. Now, it's kind of like if you, win, if you won gold at the Olympics and you look down and you're looking at your gold medal and you realize that's chocolate covered in foil. Well, that's, that's a little bit depressing. But the thing about this crown, and of course, and you would imagine, is that it would just deteriorate. Within a few weeks, it would be brown, it would be crinkly, and it wouldn't actually be of any consequence. But that's not the point. The point wasn't the crown. The crown is the symbol. The crown is just a token of the real prize, which is the glory. See, if you'd won at the games, you come back to your home city and everybody loves you. You are the superstar. You are the celebrity. All of the fathers will be lining up to give your daughter to, the, to you as a wife. I mean, you would, be, you would go down in the records because you won the games. There'd be inscriptions and plaques in your honor. Everyone would know your name and that would live on forever. And in a world that's the whole goal is pursuing honor, it's pursuing glory. Well, to win the games, to have that glory was just extraordinary. I mean, it was just, that's what it's for. So Paul says, yeah, that's all right. They're going to do all of this training to get a crown that's not going to last. We're doing it for a crown that lasts forever. The prize that we're pursuing, we don't even get it in this lifetime. We might get honors along the way. We might even win an Olympic crown. Maybe you're, you're an Olympic athlete. Fantastic. But all of that will, will diminish. All of that will be left behind in this life. He says the real crown that we're pursuing is the one that lasts forever. He goes on, he says, therefore, I do not run like someone running aimlessly. He says, I do not fight like a boxer beating the air. So this is clear imagery of, of running and of boxing. And it's a similar picture that we have in Hebrews. Hebrews 12.1 says, Since we're surrounded by a cloud of witnesses, let us throw off everything that hinders and the sin that entangles and run with perseverance the race marked out for us. And if you look at these stadiums that people would run in, and it was just a semicircle or a, a, a um, sort of an oval sort of shape with just with stadium seating. And in the middle was the ground where you would run. So this cloud of witnesses are all the people, at this, the spectators, all the ones watching on as you're running this race. 
And he says, so if you're going to run this race, throw off all of the hindrances. I mean, of course, these people ran naked. They would compete naked. I mean, there was not even the hindrance of any clothes. It was just everything taken off so that they could be free to run to the absolute best of their abilities. And he says, run this race with perseverance. He says, uh, uh, sorry, um, he says, sorry, sorry. He says, when I, when I, I, I run, I don't run aimlessly. He says, when I box, I don't just punch the air. He says, you need a target. You need a finish line to run towards. You, you need an opponent to punch, somebody to box against. There's this, I don't know about you, but I find life tiring. And I think if we're being honest with ourselves, I think for all of us, life is tiring. I mean, I, I hear this all the time. It's, oh, I'm just, I, I do that, but I'm too tired. Life is just tiring. I think that's just one of the things that we have to come to realize is that life is an exhausting exercise. But the thing about being tired is that if you do nothing, you'll be tired. And if you do something, you'll still be tired. So it actually doesn't matter what you do. You're always going to be tired because life in and of itself is tiring. So think about it. I know it sounds paradoxical, but if you're lazy, you actually get tired from inactivity. If you think about it, you know, if you just sit around and you do nothing all day and you just, you're not really putting in any effort into anything, you just feel tired. Even though you haven't actually done anything to make you physically tired, you just feel tired. And the longer you do that for, the less energy and the less ability you have to actually do something when it comes time to do something. And so someone will come along and say, hey, look, you know, come, we're going to do this. Like, yeah, I'm just too tired. Like you haven't done anything, but you're just tired from doing nothing. So even when you do nothing, you get tired. But then on the other hand, you can get exhausted from doing something. But then there's different kinds of tired you can get from doing something. The first kind is when you spend all of your effort and energy and resources pursuing nothing. You're just working for the sake of working. You're pursuing goals that aren't even real, that aren't actually there. They're just this imaginary thing. You're pursuing after stuff or, or money or whatever, whatever it might be, but it, and it tires you out and you get to the end of it and you're just exhausted, but you actually haven't achieved anything. It's kind of like a midlife crisis. You know, it's just kind of, you get to this point where it's like, I feel tired. I've done all of this stuff, but I've got, I don't feel like I've got anything to show for it. In the same way, if you're running, you can run, you can sprint, you can use all of your energy and ex doing that exercise but if there's no finish line, you're eventually going to collapse and you'll have got nowhere. You can box and punch and do, do all of that. And if there's no target, you're going to be exhausted. You're going to collapse, but you actually haven't achieved anything in the exercise. And so we're going to be tired. Well, if we're going to be tired, the best kind of tiredness to actually get tired by doing something, by actually achieving something. You'll pursue a finish line, you'll pursue a target or a goal that's been set for you in your life, a calling, and you'll get to the end and you'll be tired, but you'll have the satisfaction of actually having achieved something. So whichever way we look at it, we're going to be tired. What Paul's saying here is, this is if I'm going to run, I'm not going to do it aimlessly. I'm going to have a finish line. He says, if I'm going to box, I'm not going to do it aimlessly. I'm not just going to punch the air. I'm actually going to box something. I'm going to have an opponent, a target that I can swing punches at. So the point really in life is that we need this finish line. We, we need this target. Otherwise, we're just going to exhaust ourselves and achieve nothing. 
And so finally, Paul says, he says, no, I, I strike a blow to my body. He says, he literally, he says, I punish myself and I make my body my slave so that after I've preached to others, I myself will not be disqualified for the prize. Uh, the common idea amongst philosophers in Paul's time was that the body is just a vessel. This idea that life, the goal of life is to become fully human. The, the goal of life is to fully embody what it means to be a human being. And one of the tools that we have to do that is our body. But the point is that our body is only a means to an end. The end is to become fully human. The body is something that actually helps us to get there. Now, conversely, what they would say is that the problem for humans is that the body becomes the ends in itself. And so the, the problem they see in humanity is that we're constantly just trying to appease our body. All of our energy and effort is, is just put into satisfying the cravings of the flesh. And so long as that's the case, we'll never become fully human. All we're going to do is just satisfy the flesh. It says, but to really achieve what we need to achieve, we actually have to lay aside the body. We have to see the body as nothing more than a vessel to get us to the real prize. So what Paul says is something similar. He says, I've got this body, but the Christian life isn't about pursuing what my body feels like. It, it's not saying that I, I never eat again or that I never do things that give me some sense of pleasure. But if that's all that I'm doing, if that's all that I focus on, then I've actually missed the point. So Paul says, I use my body in the Christian life as a means to do the things of God. It's not, my, my pleasure is not the ends. It's not about me. It's about pursuing the, what God wants and the body as the thing that helps me get there, if that makes sense. So Paul says to them, no, he says, no I strike a blow to my body and I make it my slave so that, and for this whole purpose, so that after I've preached to others, I myself will not be disqualified for the prize. This is my whole focus is the finish line. It's this goal of winning that crown of eternity. So everything I do, all the resources I have, everything is about that goal. And if it's something that hinders me, I get rid of it. If it's something that is a distraction, I look away from it. Everything about me is singularly focused towards that. And all of the resources that are available to me through my body, I utilize that for that purpose. And if that, and there's going to be times when my body's going to want to take me away and just pursue its own pleasures. Well, no, I need to discipline at that point. Come back to that, that, that athlete who's training for, for an Olympic Games. How many times do they wake up at 4.30 in the morning and think, man, I'd just like to go back to sleep. But no, they need to get up to get to the pool or get to the track or wherever they need to get to because there's a greater prize at, at work. And so the body at that point needs to be disciplined. The body just wants to sleep. The athlete says, no, 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 I need to get up. I need to go and do the thing. I need to, the body's, this body that wants to sleep is actually the vessel that I need to train and discipline to win that greater prize. Paul says in the same way, this is what the Christian life is about. So where are we with all this? How does this all finish up? Well, the point is quite simple. Pursuing the Christian life is hard. It's not meant to be easy. Life itself is not easy, and certainly the Christian life is no easier. It is hard. It's, it is a challenge. It's, it's why Jesus says, take up your cross. He doesn't promise us an easy ride. 
He tells us right up front, it's going to be difficult. It's going to require discipline. It's going to require sacrifice. To achieve anything good in this life requires discipline. It requires sacrifice. It means laying aside the hundred things to pursue after to pursue the one. And it's exhausting. Whichever way we live our life, it's going to be exhausting. It's especially going to be exhausting when we pursue the things of God. But then that's true for everything that's worthwhile in this life. Well, I might just leave it at that. Thank you so much for listening. I hope this has been helpful and uh, I'll, I'll see you next week. All the best. Mm-hmm.